This evening we're going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 7. When we turn into 1 Samuel, we're going to see God renewing his covenant with Israel. And we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 7 to see where God first makes the covenant promises to his people. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to go down to verse 11. Listen to God's word now. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Amen. So come to God's word. Let's pray for his blessing. Lord, we are coming to you now. Um, our faithful merciful, covenant-keeping God. We thank you that you are our shepherd, and we pray that as we come to your word, you would shepherd us, you would guide us, you would change us to be the people that you want us to be. We pray that you would do that through your word and through your powerful spirit, and that none of us would be able to leave having heard your word and not having been touched and changed by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Our sermon this evening is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 12. That's 1 Samuel chapter 12. Let's listen together to God's word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and is anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness. 
who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. One of the, the true beauties of the gospel is that God forgives all of our sins completely in Jesus Christ. We know that when we come to faith that God forgives all of our past sins. It's often how we think about it. But I'm talking about the fact that God continues to forgive our sins, even as Christians. Sometimes that's actually harder for us to believe. Sometimes, especially with very serious sins, we don't believe that God can actually forgive us. We have sinned against his grace, and God can't forgive me this time, can he? But the answer, every time, is if we come in faith and repentance... God does forgive our sins. That process of being made right with God and others can be painful, but it's always possible. 
God works in our lives to bring us to repentance and to a restored relationship with him and with others. All of us know what that process feels like. And in our passage tonight, we see God bringing Israel through that very same process. He is bringing Israel back into fellowship with himself after one of the greatest sins in their history. Forgiveness and renewed faithfulness are possible for Israel, and they're possible for us as well. That leads us to the main idea of the passage. We see that the Lord graciously calls his people to faithfulness again. The Lord graciously calls his people to faithfulness again. So we look at this passage, we're just going to walk section by section, following Samuel's speech to the people. Now we see that the, the, the person that God uses to bring his people back to himself is Samuel. God works this dramatic restoration through Samuel. And this happens in one of the last public acts of Samuel's ministry. Right? He's been the main character almost all the way up till now. And after this chapter, he'll show up a few times, but he's stepping off the stage. And now Saul the king will be the main character. Samuel talks about this transition in verse, verse 2. He says, The king, pointing at Saul, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. Saul's now king, and Samuel, the last judge, is ready to step down. We saw the beginning of this process of transitioning from Samuel to Saul at the end of chapter 11 that we looked at last week when Samuel leads the people to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. As we see very clearly now in chapter 12, renewing the kingdom involves much more than just recognizing Saul as king. Renewing the kingdom also requires Israel to repent and return to their God. Samuel begins this process by challenging, challenging the people with his own faithfulness as their judge. In verses 3 to 5, Samuel challenges the people to list his sins. What did he steal? Who did he oppress? What bribe did he take? And the people respond by recognizing his holiness. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Now, I'll admit, talking about yourself may seem like a very odd way to start leading someone else to repentance. It may seem odd for Samuel to talk about his own holiness in order to lead Israel back to holiness. But Samuel here is reminding the people of his own character as their judge, as their leader, and as their prophet. He is well qualified to be God's messenger to call Israel to repentance. Samuel turns from reflecting on his own faithfulness to pointing the people to God's faithfulness. Verse 7, he says, Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. This is Samuel the prophet reminding the people of God's faithfulness to them. He starts with the Exodus. He reminds the people of God's faithfulness through Moses and Aaron, through judges like Gideon, Barak, and Jephthah, and through Samuel himself. 
God rescued Israel from Egypt and delivered them from their enemies in the promised land. Generation after generation, God has been faithful to his people. But as we see again in these verses, any story of God's faithfulness goes hand in hand with Israel's unfaithfulness. goes hand in hand with their constant sin. Samuel could have picked any time in Israel's history to show them their sin, but he looks in particular at the time of the judges when they have a slow but steady descent into greater and greater sin. Look at verse 9. It says, They forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Each time, as we see going through the book of Judges, they get lower and lower and lower as they forget their God and they serve other gods. Time after time, Israel does this. They turn their back on God. And time after time, God sent their enemies to judge them. But also, time after time, when Israel came to their senses and repented and called out to God for help, God always Save them. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. Israel has really only ever been unfaithful. But Israel has always asked for forgiveness. And they have been saved by God. But Samuel's point here is now something has changed. There's something new about Israel's sin in this generation. Instead of forgetting God for a time, remember what they're doing? They're trying to replace God as their king with a human king. Samuel explains their sin again in verse 12. He says, the Lord your God was your king, but you have asked for somebody else, just a man, to rule over you. This sin is so serious that God has reminded Israel at least three times about it. He mentions it in chapter 8 when they originally reject him. He mentions it in chapter 10 at the assembly to call Saul to be their king. And he mentions it here again in chapter 12. Clearly, God cares very deeply about this sin. What is so wrong about what Israel is doing? Well, remember what the problem is with this sin. They want someone else to rule them and to save them, someone other than God. What they are doing is really rejecting God's covenant with them. Yes, God, we still want you to be our God, but we don't really want you to be active in our lives. We want you to stay far away, and we want somebody else to stand in your place, to do all those same things for us. They are rejecting their covenant relationship with God. This is covenant rebellion. These people should be wiped off the face of the map. This is now many times that they have rejected God, and their sins are getting worse and worse and worse. But part of what's striking about this passage is how God deals with his rebellious people. Verse 13, God has given them a king. He has met their demands. But I want to focus especially on verses 14 to 15, and God's grace here. Notice what he says. He says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Does that sound like something else you've heard in the Bible? The Old Testament? Yes, it should. What we have in these verses is basically God restating his covenant with his people. Except now the terms are updated to include the reality of having a king. Right? Verse 14 is the positive side. Right? He starts with the responsibilities. If you will fear, serve, and obey God and not rebel against him, and if you and your king follow God, then, the, then here comes the blessing. It will be well with you. God will bless you. So verse 14 is the positive side of the covenant. Verse 15 is the negative side. If you disobey, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now these verses sound a lot like what God has said to his people. For instance, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. Go and read it sometime. It's a long chapter full of God's blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. My point here is simple. Israel's sin, as bad as it is, hasn't disqualified them from being God's people. God hasn't given up on them. Instead, he's graciously forgiven them, and he is reminding them of their relationship with him. He's even making their sin, asking for a king. He's making that a vital part of their relationship with him. This is just, this is just amazing grace on God's part. It is completely and utterly undeserved by Israel. Instead of casting them off, he's bringing them back for the next time. Part of why verses 14 and 15 are such an amazing display of God's grace is because Israel hasn't even repented of their sin yet. Did you notice that? Uh, verses 16 to 18 are God's dramatic way of getting Israel's attention and showing them the depth of their sin. And Israel only repents in verse 19. Uh, just practical application here, don't be like Israel, right? Do not delay repenting like the Israelites do, and certainly don't delay repenting and somehow expect God's blessing in your sin. Okay, Psalm 32 and Romans 6 are clear that we should not continue in sin without repenting. And yet, God is still abundantly gracious to sinful people, to his sinful people. And he offers sinful Israel a renewed relationship with himself. But as he reminds them of the covenant and calls them back to covenant faithfulness, repentance is required. That's not an optional extra. Repentance is required. And God gives a dramatic sign to shake Israel out of their sin. Verse 17, Samuel says, Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. You know, the wheat harvest. So at the beginning of the dry season, so rain, especially a great thunderstorm like this, would have been extremely unusual. This is a divine sign of God's activity in their life. It was meant to show God's power, but it's also to show God's hatred of their sin. And here was the result. All the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 
This is a dramatic turn in the hearts of Israel. From chapter 8 on, we've seen Israel treat God and Samuel, his prophet, with contempt. That's how they treated them. They've been pushing for their own way instead of listening to and obeying God. The, the thunderstorm that they experience here is just a tiny taste of God's wrath for their sins. And it was enough to break through their hard hearts. Look at verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. This is a good confession of, of sin coming from a people who are broken because of their sin. You can see what they say. Israel understands the danger they are in because they have offended a holy God. And Israel also has a clear recognition of exactly what their sin is. And as they look at God's wrath and holiness, and as they look at their own sin, they experience that godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. And Samuel, like Moses before him, agrees to intercede for the people in their sin. This is part of the grace of God to provide them a way to be freed from their sin, someone to pray for them in their sin. And not just to pray for them, but notice that Samuel spends the whole rest of the chapter now encouraging them and warning them to stay faithful in their new commitment to God. Verse 20. Samuel's very straightforward with them. He acknowledges their sin. He says, yes, you have sinned. But then he turns and he encourages them to not be afraid. You don't need to fear God if you come to him in faith and repentance. Behind Samuel's statement here is the sureness of God's promise to fully forgive us when we repent of our sins. Israel does not need to live in fear of God's judgment if they have truly repented. They are now actually able to refocus and recommit themselves to true obedience. Samuel reminds Israel in verse 22 that the reason they're able to return to God, to recommit themselves, to refocus on obedience, is all because of God. The Lord will not forsake them. Samuel in this verse is pointing Israel back to God's free choice to make Israel his people in the first place. Israel was never worthy of God's love and care. Even before they fell into serious sin, they were not worthy of God's love and care. God chose Israel because he wanted to. And he has committed himself and his reputation to being faithful to Israel. We saw a similar statement in Deuteronomy 7 where we were reading earlier when Moses tells Israel God didn't choose them because they were numerous, but he rescued them from Egypt. Why? Because of his love and his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. These truths are, are so important for us to hold on to tightly. God has chosen us in Christ. We don't deserve God's salvation. But God has chosen us, and because he has committed to save us and to preserve us, that means we are always able to return to him in repentance 
and he always welcomes us back. Ultimately, our relationship with God doesn't depend on our sin or on our repentance. It doesn't depend on us actually at all. It depends on his everlasting, powerful, saving love for us. That is the unshakable foundation of our relationship with God. It's true that in our sin, our relationship with God, we feel the difference. Our fellowship can be broken for a time, but we are never cast away from God. And when we return, he always forgives. The point is that the comfort that Israel experiences in this chapter is the exact same comfort that we can experience as God's people as well. And just as Israel can take further comfort from Samuel's promise to continue to pray for and instruct Israel, same is true for us. We don't just have a Savior who saves us and leaves us. We have a Savior who intercedes for us. Do you want to know why God does not cast you out? Well, he loves you, and he's loved you from the foundations for the foundations of the world, but you also have a loving Savior who is praying for you in all circumstances, and he is praying for you to repent and return. And as Samuel says, he's going to instruct Israel in the way that they should go, and that is exactly what Christ does for us through his Spirit. He shows us the right way to walk. We have a powerful, loving God and a powerful, loving Savior who is constantly at work in us to guide us in the way that we should go and when we get off the path to apply his salvation and bring us mercifully back to God in the way we should go. Let me draw out a few more applications from this passage. The first one is this. God is able to forgive great sins. Many of us here have probably committed very serious sins in the Christian life. Um, part of the comfort of this passage is knowing that God fully forgives us when we repent, no matter what we do. It's true that the consequences of our sin, they'll, they'll stick with us. But God fully, completely forgives us in Jesus Christ. Notice again God's abundant grace to sinful Israel. He has faithfully pursued them over the course of four chapters. And now he shakes them out of their sin, and then he shows them even more grace in forgiving them. And in his forgiveness, he commands Israel, and he commands us not to dwell on our past sin. Did you notice what Samuel said again? He said, yes, you have sinned. Now stop being afraid and go serve him. That is actually part of God's forgiveness for us. He says to us, God says to us when he forgives us, start fresh. Start again. Start walking again in the path of obedience. Notice how the commands in this passage over and over are about obeying from now on. God says this so many other times in the Bible. When God says, for instance, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from himself, he means that. When he says that he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea, he means that. He will not hold our sins over our heads. But instead, he commands us to obey. The practical application is simple. If God doesn't dwell on your sin any longer, you shouldn't either. I know we do it. We all do it. We all continue 
to look back at our sins in the past. Can God forgive me? We saw it in Psalm 25, forgive me for the sins of my youth. But we're not trapped by our sins anymore, no matter how serious they are. We are not trapped by our sins. We are freed to serve God by his forgiveness. I hope you know how freeing these realities are. Really the reality of abundant, amazing grace. And what is true of us as individuals is also true of us as churches as well. You know, a New Testament church like Corinth is a perfect example. They were strongly condemned by Paul for allowing public sin. And yet when they repented, the church was restored and experienced God's blessing. Now, I'm not making that application about churches because I'm saying anything about sin at our church, right, at Peninsula Reform. But I'm showing that that is how amazing God's grace is. It can even extend to entire churches that are caught in patterns of sin. The promise of forgiveness and the promise of restored relationship and obedience is there. I hope that gives you encouragement as we see many churches around us being unfaithful in their calling. God is powerful enough to forgive any of his people all of their sins and to bring them back. This gracious forgiveness that Israel experiences, this gracious forgiveness that each one of us can have, the gracious forgiveness for all of his church today, that forgiveness is possible because God himself is faithful to his promise to always be our God. And even more than that, that he is, as our God, he is faithful to deal with our problem with sin. That's part of what it means to be our God, to take us out of our sin and to bring us into his presence. In Romans 3, we read of how a just and holy God can actually make us right with himself. How can he do this? Listen to this passage. I know we know it well, but listen again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has dealt with our sin by sending his very own son to redeem us, by making atonement for our sins by his blood. Jesus has paid the price for our sins and he has satisfied God's wrath. And now God doesn't count our sins against us. He put all of our sins on Christ so that he puts none of our sins on us. He has forgiven all of our sins in Jesus Christ. We know it's true, but it's hard to believe. It's hard for us to believe. When we look at ourselves so often, we only see our sin. But remember how God looks at us. How God looks at us now in Jesus. When he looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us. And he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. That is who God sees when he looks at you and he looks at me. He sees Christ and his work on your behalf. We're still called to live lives of obedience. God is still calling us to do that. 
but we can, each one of us, rest assured in the finished work of Christ. The great encouragement of this passage is the encouragement of the gospel. That when we sin, know that as God's people, God will be at work in us to bring us to repentance and to restore our relationship with him because Christ has died for us and he has been raised for us. He is praying for us. He is blessing us and he is ruling for us. God is our God. And no matter how many times we walk away from him as his people, he will never, ever let us go. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, the glorious truth of the gospel is so amazing. Your grace for us is just way beyond anything that we can really even imagine. So we look at ourselves and we see our daily sins and even the times in our lives where we have committed serious sins as well. Help us to trust in your amazing grace in Jesus Christ to know that our sins are completely forgiven, that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we stand before you in his righteousness. We do pray that you would make us faithful to obey, but we pray also in faith that when we stumble and fall and we sin, that you would be true to your character and your promises, that you would do your work again to bring us back to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.